0: Reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now when the human one comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. Amen.
1: That's kind of a harsh one when you give the full context, huh? We like the sheep parts, but the goat is a little intense. Good morning everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. Um, Now this morning's reading is a classic, Matthew 25. It's held really dear by a lot of people who do social justice work or mercy ministries. Um, But I think it's actually really radically political, and we're going to talk about some of that political aspect today. But right now we are in the middle of a series called Lies I Heard in Church, and we are debunking some of the things that many of us have commonly heard last week we talked about the common lie that there is something wrong with being queer the week before we heard about the lie that the bible is clear about well anything and on and on we're going to be kind of taking on these these common things that feel so taken for granted in a lot of church spaces but are actually lies and the lie that i'd like to talk about today the lie that you may have been told explicitly but you may have heard or seen a lot and internalized implicitly is the lie that Jesus was white. Now, how many of us feel like we grew up with a white concept of Jesus? Yeah, he's pretty ubiquitous. Like props to you if you have, um, you know, other images that have really worked their way into your heart, that you've got this sense of a non-white Jesus. But it is so, so culturally bound, and our white supremacist culture just completely washes over the complexity and ethnicity of Jesus. Now, whenever I talk about this, I think about something that happened a decade ago with Megyn Kelly from Fox News. Does anybody remember Megyn Kelly? All right. More folks than I was hoping, but... uh, (laughs) Poor Megyn. Uh, So Megyn Kelly had a problem with Santa Claus about a decade ago. Now, this happened because there was a conversation where folks were saying that BIPOC children should not have to grow up with a white image of Santa and that we should celebrate, embrace, amplify the already existing um, plentiful images of of black uh, and other POC images of Santa. So, like, there are lots of people who grow up with BIPOC Santas, and there was just a conversation happening culturally that was like, hey, why is what we see most in in kind of like mainstream culture, why is that Santa always white? And oh my gosh, when I tell you that Megyn Kelly melted down, she couldn't handle it. She freaked out. I'm going to quote her precisely. So I need you to know that I've watched Fox News to bring you this information. So she's explaining this, and then she kind of cuts the camera and says, for kids at home, Santa is white, but people are arguing that maybe we should have a black Santa. Just because it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean it has to change, she said. Jesus was a white man, too. He was a historical figure. That's verifiable fact. (laughs) And I think even people who were, like, entertaining her conversation about Santa, which they shouldn't have, heard that last bit, and they are like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Because Santa is a collective story that we get to tell. We get to decide all kinds of things about who Santa is and how we portray him. But if you're going to invoke Jesus as a historical figure, and you're going to try and claim that that Middle Eastern Jew was white, now we've got some
0: problems. (laughs)
1: Even mainstream and some conservative Christian figures came onto news networks, including CNN. It was such a bizarre thing. CNN, we had people talking about, like, yeah, no, like, Jesus was definitely brown, Megan. Like, definitely, definitely brown. And these were folks who would probably not often talk about Jesus' race or, or ethnicity. People who would probably not bat an eye at an image of a white Jesus. But when you want to get technical about it, when you want to talk about historical facts, and, and you know, Megyn Kelly's Jesus was a historical figure, well, now, now we've got to contend with the fact that Jesus absolutely was not white by the standards of European whiteness that Megyn Kelly is definitely invoking. So where did Megyn Kelly go wrong? Like, how how did she come to this very firm, very wrong conclusion that the historical figure of Jesus was a white man. I mean, you can kind of forgive her a little bit, because white Jesus is everywhere. Like, when you picture Jesus, what do you picture? I want to show you a very famous depiction of Jesus. We've got a picture up here in a second. All right. Now, does anybody in here recognize that person as, as supposed to be Jesus? Most of us, right? Like, I think it's pretty, we've been trained to look at that image and say, like, oh, yeah, it's obviously Jesus. But, like, I'm sorry, that, that dude's not Jesus. That dude is Nils Anderson, who I went to high school with, who is the most aggressively Swedish human being I've ever met. That man has never stepped foot in Galilee in his life. (laughs) In Western art, Jesus is repeatedly portrayed as a pale, thin white man, often with dirty blonde hair and blue or sometimes green eyes. His fingers are long and delicate. His body is frail. The glow of the angelic light around his head is the closest thing his translucent skin has ever seen to the sun. That's the Jesus that we've been taught to think of. But here's the thing. If you put that dude on a hill in the Middle East and have him preach for several hours, he's going to burst into flame. (laughs) That dude is not from there. That dude is not from Palestine. And so when we're talking about Jesus, we have to separate these images that we've been inundated with, with the historical figure. And those images are so ubiquitous that when, Zao, when we as a community learned that we might have access to like a historic church space with beautiful stained glass windows, I heard stained glass and I, my, my insides went like, Ugh, because I was like, I don't know, I don't know if I can worship beneath a white Jesus. And then we came into this space and we looked up and we were like, oh, God, thank God he's brown. <laughs> that one's brown. And it's so rare. We're so proud of it. It's the password to our Wi-Fi. Brown Jesus. One word. No caps. (laughs) It's our public Wi-Fi. No worries. Like, that's how, that's what, that's a big deal. It's a big deal to have a brown Jesus in here. Because white Jesus is everywhere. Everywhere. Jesus is whitewashed so much. This is the lie that we have been taught, that Jesus is white. And so I want to break it down. What is the truth? If Jesus isn't white, is it just a simple, like, Jesus is brown? Jesus is from Nazareth? Well, I want to break it down at three different levels. First, I want to argue, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth was brown. Like, historical Jesus was a brown-skinned man. But second, I want to talk about how Jesus the Christ, and we'll get to what that means, was multi-ethnic. And third... This is, the, this is the one that's a, a little bit of a twist. Third, Jesus Christ, our liberator, is black. And we'll talk about what that means and how that challenges each of us. All right, so number one, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' ethnicity matters. Jesus had an ethnicity. It's really tempting for us to completely separate Jesus, for many historical contexts, we like to think of Jesus as being beyond all of that. And in a way, he is. We'll get to that. But for now, for the beginning, we have to start where God starts, which is in the middle of particularity, which is in a real body, in a real context, in a real political context. Now, people will say when they're pressed, like, yeah, of course, Jesus would have had olive skin and dark eyes dark hair. There is that one passage about how his hair was like wool, but Jesus didn't have a race or ethnicity. Now, race is a social construct, right? Like, there's no biological race. Race is a social construct, and that social construct did not exist in the same way in Jesus's day as it exists now, but if you took Jesus of Nazareth in his first century body and dropped him onto the Fox News set I can guarantee you, Megyn Kelly would not have let him be Santa Claus. So when we are talking (laughs) about Jesus's whiteness, or Jesus's ethnicity, or Jesus's race, context matters. And that's Jesus being brown-skinned from Nazareth, which was kind of like an unknown backwater rural town, right? Like those things matter, specificity matters. God didn't create a creation that's all like really homogeneous, right? It's one of the things we really struggle with. We would all really like it if we were all the same, preferably if everyone was like me. But that's not the beauty and design of God's good creation. God's creation is unity and diversity. God's creation is not us all being identical to one another, one another. It is all of us coming in our exact particularity, being exactly who we are, and being then in community and communion with all things. And God, Jesus, is, it embodies that in a very particular way. God chose to come be with us, right? And when we talk about the historical Jesus, we have to acknowledge that God made a choice to be brown. God made a choice to be Palestinian and Jewish under Roman occupation. And to erase that is to completely disregard the choices that God makes about how to show up to us in our particularity. So when we talk about historical Jesus and we say, yeah, that dude was probably brown, people have tried to offer more accurate images to kind of compete in our imagination with all those like white surfers we've seen over the years. Now, these are wild guesses. We don't really have any information about what Jesus looked like. But somebody took, like, a random skull from around where Jesus lived from the first century. That could have been anybody. But it gives us a more accurate, like, frame of reference for what Jesus may have looked like. And you can see the differences. So let's throw up there's an artist rendering based on this skull. This is what scholars say, maybe not Jesus, but a first century Palestinian Jew may have looked like. Now, how many of you looking at that image would immediately think Jesus? A lot fewer of us, maybe none of us, compared to the long-flowing European Scandinavian image that we had before. Now, there's another Artist rendering that I want to show up, uh, uh, this is another person's attempt. Jesus probably looked a lot more like that than what we've seen depicted in Western art. And our historical Jesus had a real body with a real face, with real features, and those features were Middle Eastern. There's data that shows that at at that time of Jesus' life, that Egyptians couldn't visually identify uh, Jewish people as, as somehow different, right? So that gives us a sense that like Egyptians and, and Jesus all visually occupied the same kind of space. That's who our Jesus is. That's the choice that God made about how to be with us. And so when we picture Jesus in our head, what are we, what are we imagining? When we think about what language Jesus might speak, what are we hearing? And how does it change when we look at that image of Jesus versus the one that we saw before? Jesus spoke Aramaic. Jesus lived under occupation in Palestine. He went to temple. He was from a small, unremarkable town. He worked with his hands. Those little piano player hands would not have been great for carpentry. He worked with his hands. He was a day laborer. He had a skill, not a salary. He was itinerant. He was a teacher. So why is he so often depicted throughout history as a pale, skinny white guy? Now, the answer to that, the straightforward answer to that, is that those paintings were painted by pale, skinny white guys. And this is a conversation we've been having here at Zhao for a while now, that our stories, our gospel, our, our, our texts, our tradition has been filtered through one really dominant lens. And that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem with how that image, those interpretations, that priority, that perspective has edged out everything else including stuff that, has, that should be prioritized because of its historical particularity, right? But I don't think that it's actually bad that those images of white Jesus were created in the first place. I don't think that those white Jesuses are bad, which brings me to the second point. Jesus the Christ is multi-ethnic. So when I talk about Jesus the Christ— I'm talking about this weird, wild thing where Jesus is fully human and fully divine. So Jesus, in his full humanness, was a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew. No question. And that matters. And we can't let anything erase that. Jesus, in his divinity, in his risenness, embodies what some folks call the universal Christ— which is to say God's presence, God's connection, God's relationship to and intimacy with each and every one of us. And in that way, alongside this very prominent choice that God made to show up in a brown body, God also, in the universal Christ, shows up to each of us in each of our particularities. So Jesus, across history and time, has always been portrayed consistent with the culture of the artists portraying him. In the first 400 years, all of our images of Jesus, local to that area, don't have a beard. Then beards became popular, and all of a sudden, Jesus is sporting facial hair. Right? Like, the particularities of of expression and of bodies, of time and place, show up in our depictions of the universal Christ. And there is actually value in seeing Jesus as like you. But the obvious caveat is that you cannot erase the historical brown Jesus and your image of Jesus who is like you, who shows up to your particularity, who has a body like your body also has to hold space with the Jesus who shows up in the particularities of every single body and culture on this earth. That you can imagine a Jesus who is like you, and you can imagine a Jesus who is like all, each, and every one of the children of God. Now we have a tendency when we try and think of universality to completely erase and flatten. Has anyone seen one of my favorite television shows, Community? All right, so Community uh, is about a community college, and they're trying to get a new mascot. They decide they're going to be the Greendale human beings. (laughs) Some of you are laughing because an image just came to mind. They're negotiating how to depict a human being, and they don't want to be racist, and they don't want to pick any particularity, and so they end up with a, with a person in like a gray unitard, like covering their face with like permanent marker just making like eyes and a very scary looking mouth. Because that's their attempt, right, to engage humanity without particularity. They don't want to offend anyone. And we have a tendency to do this. When we universalize, we just completely collapse. Oh, well, Christ, who is universal, who is with us all, must have no ethnicity, no race. Now, that's a problem because it erases people's experience. And it's a problem because we're not actually capable of that. And so when we pretend to do that, what we're actually doing is defaulting to whatever's most dominant. So when we say, Jesus has no race, God has no race. In our white supremacist culture, what we're really internalizing is God is white. And one of the ways to combat this, one of the ways that Jesus shows up to offer us a different way, is to imagine and appreciate Jesus in his brown body. And Jesus in the particularities of each culture, not trying to make it everything at once. And this is where we get actually to some of my favorite depictions of Jesus. We're just going to scroll through a few, but these are some depictions of Jesus from around the globe. Now when you're seeing these images of Jesus, and if you're up for it, if you could just kind of keep scrolling between them, what language does this Jesus speak? To whom does this Jesus minister? Who is this Jesus like? Jesus came on earth to take on human likeness, to relate to it, to be close to us. So it is good to imagine Jesus taking on our likeness. And it is great to imagine Jesus taking on the likeness of others. If we look at these images from around the globe, we see different cultures imagining Jesus' life and ministry in their own time and place. And Jesus comes alive in the particularity. And when we get to hold them all together, we actually get a much more accurate picture of Jesus than anyone could offer us including the most historically accurate one. And so again, I want you to consider to whom does Jesus speak and preach? What language does Jesus speak? Jesus is Indian. Jesus is Chinese. Jesus is Jamaican. Jesus is native. Jesus, the Christ, the universal, is not some blank slate. But the Jesus who shows up in the bodies, in the places, in the cultures where God's people are. No one image should ever be able to erase or dominate. And that is particularly how we fall into sin and error and harm with white Jesus. Because white Jesus isn't wrong to exist. But the moment that white Jesus starts to become dominant, starts to erase all these other beautiful aspects of who God is, especially those cultures and communities that are historically present in the in the Jesus of Nazareth, then we have a huge problem, which brings me to our third point. Jesus Christ, our living. I will hold that thought. Go back. Ooh. I'm just gonna. Is black. Oh yes. (laughs) Had to wait really long for that. That to drop. Yes, Jesus Christ, our liberator is black. Jesus Christ, our liberator, is black. Now, this argument comes a lot in my life from the work of James Cone. James Cone, an incredible, brilliant theologian, the the father of black liberation theology in the United States. And, And he breaks down whiteness and blackness. And I gotta confess, when I first encountered James Cone when I was 21, I was like a 21-year-old white kid in seminary. I didn't take it well. (laughs) It was jarring to me because, and I'll just rip the Band-Aid off right now, Cohn articulates his argument by saying that not only was Jesus black, but that the devil is white and whiteness is the devil. And I had a hard time understanding that. (laughs) I didn't like hearing that, and I found it really confusing. At the time, I had been engaging with a lot of my colleagues and classmates around um, anti-blackness in the church and anti-blackness in scripture. And one of the things that we had talked about was how images around darkness had been characterized as negative and equated with blackness. And so we were in an active conversation about how to reorient our conversations around scripture and worship to to not connote negativity with darkness and, by approximation, blackness. And so I was like, I thought we were trying to do away with all this, like, you know, race value stuff. Aren't we all, aren't we all children in Christ? And, and I, I have empathy for myself at that time. But what I was missing was an analysis of power and an understanding of what whiteness actually is certainly in the way that James Cohn is talking about it. When James Cohn says that whiteness is the devil, James Cohn is not saying white people are the devil, but he is saying whiteness is the devil. If it helps you, you can think about whiteness as white supremacy or white supremacy culture, but I want you to really challenge yourself to expand what that might mean to consider whiteness to be the devil. Now, to give you a little bit more context that I didn't have when I was first encountering this idea and struggling with it, I want to talk about race as a social construct again. Now, I mentioned that race as a social construct didn't exist in the same way when Jesus was doing his ministry. Ethnicity absolutely existed and was important, caused all kinds of tensions and hierarchies, But race as we know it now really wasn't constructed until the last 400 years. And we think of it as this eternal thing. A lot of us think of it unconsciously as a biological thing, something inherent to us. But it's actually something that we've created together, a story that we've created over generations. And this story about whiteness and blackness and who was white and who was black was created to justify slavery. Now that might feel backwards to some of you. Some of you are like, surely no, slavery happened because we, you know, there was this history of difference and people, you know, white people looked at black people said you're different and treated them as less than. But what I want you to know is that the history of this country is that whiteness and blackness as such did not exist when the transatlantic slave trade was in, like, the beginning of its full swing. So 400 years ago, Europeans, we were trying to justify their enslavement of kidnapped Africans. And slavery had existed for a long time, but this was like the next, next level. It wasn't, had nothing to do with debt, it was generational, right? And this was a new kind of thing that was especially brutal and cruel and had never really existed in that way before. we, again, have been taught to think about the enslavement of Africans by Europeans as something that happened because of race, but really it was about geography and economics. It was most convenient to, to go to, the, to the, nor- the northwest area of the African continent and to kidnap people from there and that is what Europeans did and they brought them to the United States. And so this in the beginning wasn't about blackness or whiteness, it was about geography and folks were brought here and, and then and, and enslaved, right? So all of this stuff is happening before we really have a concept of whiteness and blackness. And we have evidence of this in part because laws around race didn't get passed for another hundred years after the first kidnapped Africans were enslaved on this continent. So it was 1723 that a law was passed barring black landowners from voting. Now, when you think about that, you have to go, oh, wait a minute, that means that in 1723, there were black landowners in this country. So our idea of all of the timeline of how the construction of race worked and slavery works, a lot of it is this retcon saying like, well, race made us do it. Race made white people do this. Well, actually no, like race was the, was the intellectual and social justification for the behavior of European enslavers. And so that's, that's where we get these concepts of race. Anti-blackness is baked right in as a justification for the ways that Europeans with light skin were dehumanizing Africans with dark skin. And then from there, colorism pervaded the entire world. So the idea of race itself is about creating categorical differences to justify brutality, enslavement, and the domination of Europeans over Africans. Now that's completely uh different though entangled with culture and history and ethnicity and webs of relationship but from this understanding of race race is about power whiteness is about power who qualified as white shifted over time some of us have heard these famous arguments that like the irish were not considered white for a while italians were not considered white for a while uh, lots of Eastern European immigrants were not considered white for a while, and then their proximity to whiteness and the growth, the expansiveness of white supremacy just sort of engulfed culture after culture. And so now we have these ideas of whiteness that are totally different than they were a few hundred years ago, but just as rooted in who has power. Now some of you who have kind of fluctuating relationships to whiteness, who may experience proximity to whiteness differently in different spaces, know this really intimately, that there are spaces in which your proximity to whiteness gives you more power, and there are spaces in which you are perceived as not white or not as white, and you lose power. Whiteness in this understanding is about domination at the expense of others. And blackness, by contrast, is the lived and named experience of those people who are oppressed by that power and domination. Now, this idea of race and whiteness, it shows up differently in different cultures, but it shows up all over the world. I was, uh, I had another humbling experience of how little I understood about race when I was uh, traveling and studying in Guatemala. I had this teacher... Um, Her name was Rosa, and we were talking um, about advertisements that I was seeing all over the city. Now, Rosa, in my kind of understanding of whiteness in the United States, would be considered a person of color. She had dark skin, dark hair, and that's who I saw throughout most of Guatemala. More dark skinned people. There was uh, a variety of shades of human beings in that country. But I saw a lot of billboards that had a lot of blonde people with light skin. And so I asked Rosa, why are all the advertisements here filled with white people? And she got really offended. And she was basically like, what do you mean white people? And I was like, well, there, there are, are like white blonde people in all the billboards, but like Guatemala does not have a lot of white people in it. And it, a little bit of language stuff and my struggle there, but like it took me a second to figure out that Rosa was offended because not only did she identify herself as white and most of the people in Guatemala as white, but it was offensive to her that I had suggested otherwise. And when we got into it, she said, oh, the only non-white people here are indigenous people. And indigenous people don't need to be advertised to because they don't buy things or have any money. And this was another instance of me understanding the way that whiteness is a social construct wherever it is that creates a sense of hierarchy, power, and value. And so I wanna come back to James Cone's understanding that whiteness itself is the devil. And Jesus chose blackness. Jesus chose to be poor, working class, marginalized, occupied from backwater Nazareth Nazareth, with brown skin, living under Roman rule. God chose to show up to humanity in blackness, in the experience of the marginalized and oppressed, in the experience of creative survival, in the experience of prophetic life under the oppression of dominance. God could, could have chosen whiteness. But God choosing whiteness would have been God showing up as Caesar. And God didn't do that. God chose and chooses blackness. And in that way, Jesus is and always will be black. Now, that brings us finally back to our scripture for the day. Jesus talks about what it means to choose, in Cohen's terms, whiteness or blackness. Jesus demonstrates what it means to identify most with the oppressed or the oppressor. And in this allegory here, the sheep are those who identify with and care for the oppressed. The sheep are black. And in this allegory, the goats, the goats are the ones who have scrambled for whiteness whatever they were born with, whatever they could grab, whatever power they were given by the world, and they abandoned the folks who were experiencing oppression. Jesus says, I don't create a hierarchy of value. Sin does that. But if there is a hierarchy, you can count me at the bottom. Now, he uses a phrase, the least of these. And to our ears, that can often sound really demeaning. The least of things. It is like a value judgment. But Jesus isn't talking about the internal inherent value of all people. That is well established for Jesus. Jesus is talking about the power structures created in society. So whoever this society has deemed least, and in this construction, Cohn's analysis, because of rampant anti-blackness in our culture, that means blackness. Jesus is saying, whatever you have done for black folks, you've done for me. And whatever you have not done for black folks, you didn't do for me. This is Jesus not saying, hey, I'm God, and therefore, in my universality, I can connect with all people. This is Jesus modeling what solidarity looks like, saying to follow me is to choose blackness. To follow me is to renounce whiteness. To follow me is to call out the devil wherever you see it in these power hierarchies. To follow me means choosing the the priorities of the oppressed, the marginalized. And in our culture, in our time, blackness is such a proxy for those experiences. Jesus says, I am black. And you have loved me when you have loved black people. And you have hated me when you have hated black people. And that is true in all of our proximities to whiteness or blackness. All of our privileges, all of our oppressions show up in this understanding of the sheep and the goats. I love this passage. It is a challenging one. And I think actually my understanding of it got so much clearer When I was reading the radical leftist Eugene Debs, he was an abolitionist um, back in the day when abolition meant the abolition of enslaving people. And he was put on trial for his abolitionist work and eventually killed for it. But when he was on trial, he said to the judge, Your Honor, years ago I recognized my kinship with all living beings and I made up my mind but I was not one bit better than any being is on earth. I said then and I say now that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. I have not heard a better summary, a better interpretation of Matthew 25 ever elsewhere in my life. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Eugene Debs was a white man, but he was choosing against the power and privilege white supremacy was trying to tempt him with. He was following the radical Jesus into liberation because Jesus Christ, our liberator, wants to liberate all of us, wants to liberate all of us from the sins of white supremacy, including white people. But we can only do that by following Jesus into blackness, following Jesus into the love of black people, following Jesus into the love of the least of these, whatever that means in every culture and place that we show up. How does our faith change if Jesus, our liberator, is the most oppressed? I want you to think about those images that you saw and the shift that happens internally for you when you go from imagining blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus to Jesus culturally depicted around the world? What other shift can happen for you in your faith when you can imagine Jesus not as the most powerful, but as the most oppressed, and not weak in that, but as fighting always for the liberation, for the joy, for the celebration, for the life of all people, including you? Who is Jesus now? Jesus for sure isn't white. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we struggle so hard sometimes to fully understand who you are, the breadth of who you are, the beauty of who you are. We thank you for giving us art from around the world to help us imagine you and understand you in many ways. We praise you for choosing to be brown, to be Palestinian and Jewish, to, to show us from the ground, what it looks like to lead a life of resistance and joy. And God, we pray that that would inspire us (coughs) to renounce our proximity to power, to upend hierarchies, to love what is black, to love those who are most oppressed, to love the most oppressed identities we hold, to show them favor, God, as you have done. And in that way, to lead to the liberation of all. Amen.